profile. Yeah, what's so funny? Mm, what is funny? Actually, I just watched a video about uh, Dutch people uh, versus British people and the Dutch being so direct and why. Oh, uh, it was a BBC video, so you could call it racist if you wanted. Um. No, no, it's, it's a fair <laughs> game. Yeah. Um, and, but they were like explaining that it goes back to the political system and the, you know, the founding like trade routes and like how the Dutch negotiated and Calvinism and all of this stuff. But uh, very important to the like Dutch culture. And it's funny because it was a British video. The British were like, whatever we say, we mean the exact opposite. <laughs> and the British are always uh, too polite. Yeah, like if I think my dad is British, he'll say stuff like, I don't not want to do it or something. Or like, don't we not want want to go or something like yeah, Like there'll yeah, always yeah. be like a double negative or or yeah. it'll just be like, we should we should get together again sometime. But they actually mean I never want to see you again. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, But I, I don't think anyone is as passive aggressive, uh, not meaning what they say as people in California, much Americans. more than British. They, they compared the Americans too. I think... Canadians, they say, are even more polite. So we would avoid conflict at all but costs. But there's a difference between being polite and being like, oh, totally, we should totally get together. That sounds awesome. And then <laughs> total happens. sarcasm. Yeah. Yeah, actually, Kristen's family is like their entire like cultural base in the family, but it's humorist, is like sarcastic humor. Uh, yeah. It, it can be quite a lot of fun because you know, mixed in there. That, if you think about comedically, comedy relies on the double entendre, like the surprise ending, you know. Um, so meaning what you say is, I mean, it can be very funny because it can be surprising just to be like direct. But um, I've always had good fun with sarcasm and British people love that type of humor but, as well. But I mean, in, in our uh, spending time together, I'm known for the one, the interrupter or whatever, but... Mm. Do you feel like talking to me? I don't know if we're that different. If you, I, I don't feel like you're constantly not saying what you think and avoiding what you think. Oh no! The reason I brought it up is that Kristen was like upset at me this week because I was like, I went to the grocery store and like we were cashing out, and they're like, "Oh, what's your points number?" And I was like, I I gave them, I had to give them my phone number, so I did that. And they're like, "You're not in the system," and and then I replied. Well, we entered it last time we were here, and it was a big deal. I'm not going to do it again. <laughs> so just like, because that's what I was thinking. Like, I have no filter. Yeah. But I think I'm relatively unique in not having a filter, I think, out loud. Uh, uh, I think there's a type of person that does that. And Kristen is like, you didn't have to be so rude to that woman. I was like, what? I don't want to do it again. It's like, it's like she's yeah. like, I mean, she was, Kristen was right. I had to apologize. She's like, you're going to have to go back in there and apologize. But... <laughs> but Does the top, apology make it worse? I didn't. I didn't go back in and apologize, but oh. maybe next time I'm there. I mean, I did feel bad, but honestly, like I didn't. I've already given them all my personal information. Then the, I'm not in their system. But in a way, you're, and now you're, I'm at fault. You're offering the value of feedback. You're like, oh, your interface of uh, asking for the points number and the phone is causing friction is making customers feel unhappy. Yeah, well, I've already gone to the effort of like entering into your loyalty system, which benefits your business and yeah. now I'm trying it and it's not working and I've tried it twice with you now like Kristen's point was like you just don't need to be rude about it and I was like well how can I make that polite <laughs> and it's like oh well I guess it doesn't work I mean it but I secretly in yeah but head, if everyone's polite they would never get feedback well yeah in product I think pro being a product designer has made me even more horrible yeah and especially with user flow and information entering you're, well because you're brutal it, it's you're very like, typical that a user lies to you in yeah. to your face and you're like just please tell me the truth like i'm begging you mm. <laughs> you know yeah 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 uh, but but um it, I, it's these things that you don't realize until you move out of your country that mm -hmm. when you're within your country you think like Oh, that person is shy. Oh, that person is very forward. Oh, that person is very outgoing. <laughs> and then you take all those people from one country and put them all in, in another country. Box, and they're yeah. more similar than you think. Yeah. So I didn't feel like I was so super Dutch. And then I leave the country and everybody's like, ooh, take well, it's it never easy. You don't have to say everything immediately. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, but I mean, then you found me. Um, 
And just so you know, as a Canadian, I'm considered extremely straightforward. Probably because yeah. my mother is even more straightforward to me, like to the point where she embarrassed me continuously as a child. Is that also a sort of tech bro thing of being very straightforward? I don't think so. Like I would go, I remember going out for, you know, lunch or dinner with my mom. She'd take but me I, out. I mean more in, in the sense of if you're a heavy nerd computer oh. person that you think like, this is illogical. Let's solve the problem by facing it and not beat around with old protocol. I think there's a stereotype around engineers being extremely yeah. Yeah, straightforward. And then also like the culture of debate that tech really privileges. Like they yeah, really, yeah. that's always in the values. Like we got to be able to debate the idea, not the person. Uh, makes it not personal. You know, you're not supposed to be personal. It's never personal. It's always about the idea. Yeah. Um, which is the opposite of in art where it's always about the person and them being... <laughs> Well, yeah, I think there's a book about the etiquette in the art world, and it's Mm -hmm. bizarre. Mm -hmm. The art world, yeah, it puts you in exceptional circumstances. But for that reason, I'm very, I'm fine if someone tells me I look bad or stupid or my work is useless. Thank you for your feedback. Yeah. I will will take on the challenge. (laughs) It's extremely valuable. Now I can make an adjustment, and next time it won't be as bad. (laughs) Um, But it takes a while to get to that level of confidence. I mean... I think this is a segue into the topic you wanted to discuss today. Yeah, yeah. so we still have a queue of listener questions and we'll get to them. But there was one topic I wanted to talk about and the reason I wanted to talk about... So what I call aesthetic taboos. And so you could call it bad taste or you could give it another name. But it's interesting, not political taboos, not narrative taboos, but really things that we call ugly just by their appearance and their glance and mm-hmm. and it's very mysterious to me and it's very interesting and the reason I wanted to talk about it now is that it felt to me like in the gallery space every aesthetic has been explored every possible combination of shapes and colors and references so there's nothing shocking anymore you could do in a painting you, you can make a, a, a neon glow painting you could make Whatever, you you could put tube lights in a painting, you could put blood on a painting, feces, whatever, sure. everything, there's nothing shocking. And then all of a sudden, NFT happens and people very clearly say, whoa, 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 that's not art, get out of here, that is ugly. And it was very interesting to me that there was this big swoop, uh, common taste, like everyone agrees that is not art, that is ugly. And mm. it, it was kind of shocking because I thought that everything had been tried. It, that's always what we learn in art school. Like everything has been done. Oh, it's a postmodern condition, yeah. Yeah. And then all of a sudden there's like, hold your horses, that is terrible. And everyone agrees that it's terrible. Now, you say this, but like, just as like, would you, this is a leading question, but like going to art fairs like 10 years ago, I can remember a similar rhetoric where it'd be like, Oh, well, it's just like art fair art and it looks like crap and it's just like selfie mirrors with flowers on it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, it, it, you know, can it be confused with populism? You know, Yeah, like, it, it can be confused with context. So mm-hmm. you could say the, the, maybe the bored apes, they're problematic for political reasons too, but just on an aesthetic level, the way they're drawn. Mm-hmm. I just want to talk about the formal style and, and the, the Yeah, let's talk about it. Yeah. So I think one of the things people have embraced pixel art as sort of cute and antique and a sort of GeoCities aesthetic and blingies and things from the 90s. We've accepted that back then it wasn't art. And by now we've accepted it through people like uh, Olia Lialina and other people. It's like, oh, that has a historical context that has a relevance. It was folk Mm. art and now we're showing it in museums. And we've accepted that as historically relevant. There's vernacular to yeah. it. That, and yeah. it was all kind of low-res, pixely, and that gives it an antique feeling. And I'm all, I've always been drawn to vector graphics for aesthetic and practical reasons. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, a lot of PFP projects, for, for some reason, are these vector illustrations that then go for a lot of money. But everybody's like, no, that's illustration, that's not art. And it, it, it's, there are no rules, there's no clear... Uh, it's not physics where you can say uh, this is gravity and, and action is reaction and, mm-hmm. and you can make it. It's art. So it's all, everything's vague. Everything's arbitrary. And it's just the, about the people in power who decide what's in and what's out. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating to me that there is still this idea of ugliness that, that still exists. 
I mean, sometimes ugliness is also prized. Like yeah. we've just been yeah. through 10 years of ugly painting being yeah. Um, yeah. the cool aesthetic. But there was that, that same style of ugly painting happened in the 80s. The, yeah. the Junge Wilden in, in Germany and other people. Yeah. Kiepenberger and all that stuff. So that was that's what I meant. Like that kind of breaking the taboo of ugly painting already happened a lot of times. Yeah. The first exhibition of Roy Lichtenstein, the first time he started painting in his known style, I think Life magazine had an article, are these the ugliest paintings in the world? So they mm. were really shocking at the time. People were like, whoa, 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 that's not art. Well, it's funny that you mentioned Kippenberger because that was his whole thing was to yeah. shock. Yeah, uh, but then... He was like the bad enfant terrible. Of yeah, but Lichtenstein before that and then Kurt Schwitters before that and... Mm -hmm. Pop art was called Neo Dada in the beginning. People thought yeah. it was just another form of Dada. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, so there's but a fashion it, it, and it, cultural. It did feel like there was an end of history where every aesthetic had been tried. Mm -hmm. At least it felt like that to me. Of course, there was better and worse, but there wasn't a distinctive thing that you could say, okay, that style is by its very nature, by its hand, by its character is bad, even if it was well done. Like the thing you're, you're mentioning of like bad art fair art is probably because the works are too small. And then if you make them really big, like Olafur Eliasson and their museum installation, mm. it's the same shiny reflecting trick, but just executed on a large scale. And then people are like, oh, yeah, yeah that's art. Well, that's why I mentioned populism, though, because it can also be, you know, you have volume or yeah. access. Like or as soon as something art. is accessible yeah. or in high volume, then it's no longer precious or unique. And therefore, like, you know, suddenly it's just like, yeah. oh, yeah, that's like sand on the beach. But then it's yeah. kind of tribal that you maybe a lot of taste is about class and that people are aspirational and they want to learn about the taste of the mm -hmm. class above them. So it is that, funny because like yeah. mid-century modernism as like an example of something that was considered high taste, you know, all the way back in the 1950s or 60s in terms of like design for for the home. And somehow and it was still, aspirational. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. was, I think. And globally so, right? Well, but yeah, and, and so aesthetics also have um, periods attached to them. Like mm -hmm. mid-century modern, it was also a time of optimism. So it was a time of economic growth. So you cannot erase that emotional memory from the style. So a big part of it is the psyche of those designs, the, the energy of those designs was created in a time of optimism. And whether they objectively feel optimistic or whether our association is optimistic, something about them has a, just most people feel good in them. Well, there is this like, yeah, we I mean, there's a lot to unpack here, but like this quote unquote idea of timelessness, where does that come from? Who what power structures support it? Like or is it something innately biological, right, that we're drawn to some of these timeless aesthetics, yeah. right? Yeah. Like. Um, As the opposed to, to like a, a, a very timely design that then 10 years later looks awful, but 25 years later is interesting. Yeah. And the reason I kind of like, I'm not recentering on design, but it's just a parallel path that's interesting because design moves at a way slower pace, I would say, than art um, in terms of experimentation. I would say it like um, in, you know, in design, there's still modernism is still, you know, the paramount. <laughs> uh, you know, method, right? Yeah. And um, and in fact, to disrupt that, of course, there are other offshoots in design, but they're not considered credible. They're considered experimental. Do and you maybe know the, the Instagram account Ugly Design? Yeah, yeah, I love that. Yeah. I'm, I'm a yeah. subscriber. It's it's yeah. awesome. But like you know, and within postmodern design, even people will say, yeah, like we love postmodern design but only like every 10 years and then it'll go back to yeah. some form of modernism but if if you would think like a really large sectional couch in a sort of tan leather mm -hmm. that would be considered ugly now uh but then if you show it in a really gigantic apartment and that couch becomes a bit smaller all of a sudden it's cool Totally. Yeah. I mean, right now, Kristen and I are de decorating our home and we're in continuous conflict because she wants to buy like some coffee table that's, you know, looks like a gold necklace that <laughs> some sort of princess that's like mounted like totally she wants 17th century. I'm going to say the word Gaudi and then that actually refers to like, you know, but, but is she going for the Marie Antoinette 
<clears throat> she's just like everything's too formal and minimal. Yeah. And you know, she want and I I also was on the same tact. I t- I think I talked to you like I want to I want more organic kind of forms, you know, I want to feel um, like things are more eclectic, but these are cyclical, almost fashion patterns, I would say, in design. Whereas in art, um, I guess those cycles exist, but there is potentially like a myth that we're on like a single trajectory. But maybe with art, there's more of a search for shock than with design. Like most people Mm -hmm. don't want to have a shocking uh, (laughs) coffee table. Yeah, but yeah. a lot of people will go to a museum show to be stimulated. So they, they might not need that work in their own home, but they might go to confront themselves and be uh, in the discomfort zone. Uh, so yeah, art because often the has the role of, of, of waking you up or, or refreshing your mind. And that could mm-hmm. be through ugliness. Yeah, exactly. Because I think the argument or the, the paramount kind of like infrastructure is around representation of the human experience and versus design whose primary objective is conditioning of the human experience like making life more comfortable right so um, one is representational and and that is a a different tack than the other which is functional but it's it's the same thing with the let's say jeans and then Mm -hmm. i remember growing up and jeans were very baggy and then all of a sudden i love those yeah and then all of a sudden (laughs) The jeans got skinnier and skinnier, and then now they're baggy again. Yeah, and that's the fashion. It, that's cycle. always the mystery thing that who decides that, and and that we're all on board. And, yeah. Well, it's like Pantone's color of the year or whatever. I mean, it's typically, it's cultural, it's fashionable, but there are certain taste makers. So if we go back to your word around like taste, I think our you know taste maker got replaced with influencer. But there are certain people that kind of, and in, in organizations that start to like. They, they'll bet on a certain future and try and get, you know, some alignment around it. Like, oh, yeah, like at the Balenciaga show, they showed this. And we're noticing yeah. in subculture in, you know, trend reports but, coming but, out of Brooklyn yeah. show this. But Balenciaga, before the teddy bear scandal, um, they always played with this, oh, those glasses are really tacky, but we make them really expensive. And now they're yeah. a status symbol. And, yeah. Uh, but... But back to the NFTs and the art world, yeah, sure. I think there's a, there's such a different power structure that they started to... Was it meant to be antagonistic? Like, why are the... It, the CryptoPunks, for example, they're cute because it's pixel art. And, and like I said before, pixel art is kind of part of the canon. So pixel art is comfortable. It's, it's mm-hmm. not, not painful. So people could say it's silly to spend that much on a CryptoPunk, but... Nobody said, oh, my God, they're so ugly. But when right. people talk about NFTs, everybody's like, oh, yeah, those board apes are so ugly. And it, it, it's just fascinating to me that... It, here's an example. In real estate, everyone agrees what's valuable. Like, a view of the ocean is valuable. A view of a park is valuable. Hardwood floors are better than laminate. High ceilings are more expensive than low ceilings. There, there's these very mm-hmm. universal traits. Yeah. That's what I was referring then, to earlier. Yeah. yeah. But then when it comes to art, I think a lot of people would say like peak of painting was the Renaissance, whatever. And some people say, I don't want to have old painting like that in my house. I want to have a Jackson Pollock. Mm-hmm. And you, you could see the struggle there where Jackson Pollock was making works and everybody is like, that's so ugly. Anybody could do that. And then a couple of years later, it, the, those prices are higher than the Renaissance masters. Mm-hmm. So... There's always a push and pull, and and uh, yeah. And yeah. It, no, I mean a, another thing that we both dealt with was introducing the computer and the visual language of the computer it, it, into art spaces, and people being uncomfortable with that. Yeah, I think that that's what I was just thinking. Is like you know I had this low poly gone aesthetic, uh, like primitive shapes. Yeah, and long, and long and time. also what I want to preface is that a lot of what we call aesthetics come from uh, the tools that you have and using them in the most honest way. That's what I was going to say. To me, yeah, that's aesthetics often stem from being honest about the time you're living in. And that was like, that's a Bauhaus principle too, honestly, which is like, you know, Gropius really wanted to be honest about um, efficiency and 
combined design with manufacture and that kind of age of industrialization. And so, you know, wood was wood and metal was metal, but they could, you know, they, within the tolerances of that material, you could produce with this, with basic form, you could produce exceptional function. And I think like, yeah, in my case, it was like, I was extremely devoted to honesty to the extent that this is what the computer computer is capable of doing in real time. And so I want to reflect that. So it wasn't a nostalgia necessarily, but I remember being approached by journalists at the time when I was more popular and, you know, people asked me questions about my work. Um, and they were like, why are you like reinvigorating this like nineties, uh, video game aesthetic? And I was like, it's for me, it's not a nineties video game. aesthetic. it's what's what I'm actually capable of doing. It's what my computer can run. Yeah, yeah. And I also think it's kind of an amusing, um, you know, but then you also have the aesthetic of the Steve Jobs alter ego and the uncomfortable yeah. outfit and and the 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 tech presentation as an aesthetic exploration and the tech demo. Sure. And yeah, so that was something that evolved you're in, alongside you're in, that. You in, you introduced a lot of things that were not part of the art vocabulary, but they were not considered. Nobody said, "Oh, that performance is so ugly." Or People, no, that's interesting. But it, I, I, yeah, they definitely did. Like my gallerist would tell me that. Like, and I got mad because I was like, "Well, you don't know how to sell it then." Because, and so that's which is a typical thing for an artist to be upset that the audience doesn't get their work. But I remember being in like this really prestigious auction, and like I, I had created these like augmented reality portraits, which were like on this. You know, they were in billboards and on the side of even the transit in Toronto. Like people were really excited about them. But I didn't sell in this auction, and like next to my 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 work, like the next lot was like a golf ball on a golf tee, <laughs> and it like sold for like twenty thousand dollars, which doesn't sound like a lot, but like for me at the time, I was like, this is insane. Like that that golf tee to these rich people is is aesthetically way more valuable. But that's that's what I was saying. Like it it felt like uh, you could put anything in a gallery. And there was no limit, but then the computer was this weird limit where people were like, oh no, that's uncomfortable. That's for the office. That's not art. Yeah. And also I remember, you know, the old cliche was if you had to plug it in, it, no one wants to buy it because it's not yeah. going to fit into their home and blah, blah, blah. Um, and I think that's, there's still probably a bunch of that stigma. And around the, uh, the electronic image, I think in general, there's this guy, David Batchelor. He wrote a, a great book on color quite a few years ago, but it was about generally among the wealthy and which you know we could we could talk about them being the tastemakers because you know things trickle down and and we could obviously we can refute that argument but i'm just going to make it for a second because it's his argument that that color is considered uh tacky because it's evidence of you know the things that we want to hide like poo pee blood like our humanity and within the modernist kind of like home the kitchen is symbolic of what is considered good taste and because you can want and you can kind of follow kitchen trends over the years. But the zeitgeist had reached this point where a kitchen was like a white immaculate cube with no handles. <laughs> you can't even tell that food gets cooked there. And his point was like, this is the most biological function of the home. And so it's and, and by like, but we're, we're so um, intimidated by our biology uh, that we yeah, this will, sounds like a bit of a stretch. Well, think of the bathroom too. Like, why is it all white, right? Like, we want it to yeah. feel as clean. But as not possible. everybody has that, so I think a lot of people do all kinds. Yeah, of things. So, no, but I'm just saying his thing. So his thing was like, and then he goes on the history. Like historically, on a certain cycle, color is considered garish or tacky because it's associated with the carnival, with like deviousness. I disagree. With like, I disagree. well, I'm I, just giving I, you his argument. I mean. So the, now, like who are the most famous artists that you think of Warhol and Picasso they did so much with colors so it and yeah. yeah but you would if you brought a Warhol or Picasso in your home you would it would be the centerpiece and everything else around it would be gray or white you know because you you wouldn't want to distract no I don't to, think so I think I think people love color and poor people rich people middle class everybody loves color like I've never seen anyone I it, I I don't disagree with you I'm just making the yeah. argument that it it's considered. It was considered commercial, and commerce is considered. Tacky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I always say that the the defining aesthetic of the last thirty years, purely, just purely, like imagine you're wearing glasses and they're kind of blurry, and 
Bruce Nauman and Joseph Beuys. And like that palette, a little bit brown, a little bit gray, that looks like art. Like the closer you get to that, people immediately know it's art. And like if a it's very, or something. Yeah, but if it's very, no, de Kooning is very colorful. Oh, I guess um, I'm thinking of a few, like, okay. But if you go into the realm of color, it's allowed, but then you need context. I think then you need context to make people feel safe that it's an intelligent work and not just eye candy. So you could go in the realm of beautiful colors and that could be sold at a mall or it could be sold at a gallery or shown in a museum. And you know, you know those galleries in malls where they have like paintings of waves or dolphins or things like that? Yeah. Yeah. So once you go into the realm of the playful, you, people want to be sure that it's not that, that, that they're part of a different club. Yeah, maybe that's where um, the color you know, tackiness intersects is playfulness is juvenile. Juvenile is um, suspicious. Su- suspicious. It's for not, the Calvinist. His work is it's not a value. Yeah. yeah my, you yeah. know, um, so th- that, there might be something there, but I did, uh, I do like, it's funny too. Cause I think in different cultures, there are different norms too, right? Like, um, you know, I mentioned being ashamed of the body, but that's like, um, you know, depending on the culture you're in, like the Dutch culture is not ashamed of the body at all, right? Like, uh, or the German culture, you know, appreciates health as like in the fluids of the body and things like that with the toilet, with the little platform for the poo and everything like versus the American or French culture where it's like hidden, masked. <clears throat> yeah, like Cizek has a up. whole bit on, on toilets. And yeah, I love that. Yeah. but That's what I'm referring to. Yeah. Um, but also even this thing I was just, uh, watching like wherever there are nude beaches there, you know, typically people are more honest and straightforward. Um, and it's a factor of like accepting, you know, the, the, your natural being, um, you know, being open about what you like and dislike, um, without, uh, shame. Yeah. So I think but, like but in those places, there's more experimentation typically. So too, the, Jeff Koons is someone who explored shame and he, he introduced uh, his version of ugly and then produced it at a very large scale and that made it trustworthy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then saying it's okay to love tackiness and it's okay to accept yeah. yourself if you come from a tacky place just give the people uh, what they want yeah yeah and, and not just what they want where he came from his, his dad owned an interior decorating supply store and so he was his whole life he was surrounded by this stuff but um I'm interested in what you find ugly. Me? What is, or, or are you someone who just Well, we have to do, it would have to be a tit for tat. Like, you'll have to do it too if I do it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so generally, I find, like, because, and it's hard for me to escape this because of my upbringing. Uh, my father, who, who was a designer, was trained in, in Bauhaus method. And so I was raised around design aesthetic that's why i keep bringing it up but so it would be and this is going to shock you maybe but like what in my personal life every day it would be like ornament should be minimal you know so i know that's different from my persona as an artist where you know i'm a maximalist but i'm i'm probably um i'm on this conservative side of like ornament as a as a human being in life but for That's example, out of a very messy yeah. person. The, yeah. the, we rented an Airbnb once in Canada and we stayed there for four days. And it was in a style, the design style, that was very acceptable to most people. Mm-hmm. Like, nice view, kind of minimal, but also not too much. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. That was kind that, of that, ideal but, for me. That's like, that, that, yeah, but that's out, what out of I Airbnb imagine. listings that I could choose, I would choose that aesthetic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's the sort of like a contemporary modernism. Something very cluttered, too many clashing colors, lots of fabric and uh, chandeliers and... Yes, on and on and on. chandelier would literally trigger me <laughs> because of its like mid-aughts revival too. Like it, it would li- it, like that with like swirly patterns. Yeah. I, I might actually like collapse <laughs> like yeah. and like... Uh, 
I might go. I might have another eye surgery if that. <laughs> well, it, it's, it's that. interesting that with with design, it's easier to talk about the ugly because we're not going to offend any friends. But um, so we were watching Twin Peaks, the original series, and I think next week we're going to watch the reboots. And the reboots, mm. everybody was craving Agent Cooper to go back to the diner and eat cherry pie and drink coffee and da da da. Instead, it was all more Middle America, Las Vegas. These new homes that are very, what they call cookie cutter, but just very generic, built by big corporations, very comfortable with absolutely no style. Everything's beige. Uh, everything's carpeted. Uh, no soul whatsoever. Just Panera Bread and a, and a bunch of houses in a suburb. And that, to me, being in those environments is is really torture. It's really difficult for me to be there. It's like it's it's soul sucking, and it's the food is awful. The, there's no taste, but also just the blandness of the design. It, like I don't know. It's it's hard maybe to paint a picture, but I hope I think a Panera understand. bread is easily one of the ugliest places you can find yourself in the world. Like yeah, straight up Panera but then, bread. But yeah. then it's interesting to analyze. Am I grossed out by that because I like things a certain way and I grew up that way? Or what is it? Because it is fun going to a completely foreign country and uh, feeling an entirely new environment, whether you like mm -hmm. it or not. Maybe it's, too, maybe it's too new for you to even decide what you think. So yeah. you go to India or you go to wherever and completely culture shock and um, overwhelmed But I remember, for example, going to the mosques in Istanbul and they were too dense. There was just so much ornament and I just felt very overwhelmed. And I was like, this is, doesn't feel like a place to clear your mind and be with some side of your psyche. Instead, you just, it feels like being in a newspaper or something. It's like well, a lot of those, so um, much information. Were, it, it reminds me in interface design, there was a trajectory toward, like that I, when I started out in interface design, There was like, um, it, it was really about what you could accomplish in terms of technical ability. Like, could you make this reflection or that this seem like, the, you know, 3D or liquid or smoky or whatever material mastery. And I think like, you know, in those cathedral contexts, they were craft examples of mastery, right? So... The, to impress almost like an advertisement like or you know a, a world expo like come and see the mad you know the magic of this cathedral like because you're you're trying to get a pilgrimage to happen so you need a story to come out of it like you wouldn't believe it like the the ceiling was gold and like the light was colorful coming through this glass that was stained you know like and 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 somehow it had images of the apostles or whatever mm. right so I think it's a, it, it's really a form of marketing in that in that context. Not to to lower it to that level, but and but I remember interface design being the same way. And then remember the Johnny Ive takes over, you know, iOS moment where he's like, "No, we're going to strip it back to its like bare essentials." Yeah, yeah. And there was a real shock, uh, I think, in not just the design community but public at large in, in terms of interface design at that moment. Because, and for me, I was like already promoting that, so I was like, finally. <laughs> like, because I'd already been through the like doing interfaces that were bubbly and stuff. Yeah. And now there's even a return though to, I'm sure you've seen like multi point gradients on your trend report or whatever. And like, um, you know, some forms of photorealism being in and 3D, like kind of 3D uh, shapes and stuff being back in design trends. So, you know, I think it's somewhat cyclical, but, um, Yeah, I don't know where I'm going with this, but I think in, the, no. in terms of the, the gaudiness historically was used to attract uh, a story and or tell but a then story. If we go to the Bored Apes and, and yeah. all the PFP projects that everyone agrees is not art. I remember a conceptual artist in the Netherlands, an Italian conceptual artist, I was in Maastricht and he did a talk and one of his assignments was like, name an object that is not art. And, it, and we did it as an <laughs> exercise. It was quite difficult. And you're like, yeah. why is that not art? Why is that not? And I'm just so interested in why PFPs, everyone agrees that they're not art. 
And and when NFTs happened, the art critics were like, "Oh, they're just making a bunch of screensavers." I I wouldn't but, agree that PFPs are not art. Um, no, I know, but but yeah. I'm saying that the art world had this consensus, and they yeah. they kept it out. They're like, "We don't want to deal with it. This is." But too what shocking. I said earlier is probably true. Commercialism, commercial populism, so commercial success. I don't in a, in a, a like a, a wide distribution level. Let's take the example of William Wegman, who was a celebrated American artist. In the 1970s, who yeah, experimented he was part with of the art. conceptual scene. Yeah. yeah, and then he wasn't doing extremely well financially selling videos uh, and his conceptual works. So he started to make like postcards and calendars featuring the same concepts as his, you know, yeah, uh, celebrated work. Within Humanized ten years, dogs. he had erased his entire uh, reputation. You know. And it's considered one of the tackiest artists ever uh, to live. <laughs> so that's like that's a great example. I think that's the core of the argument, that he had the same idea, but then he just chose a different distribution. And then the art world is like, you're out. Yeah. Yeah. We don't have room for that. Like, you know, go but talk then to Hallmark. Later on, he, he did come back. And so you'll, you'll see his work in video art exhibitions and... Uh, well, people I, rediscovered I, that original work, yeah. I think. Yeah. But it is interesting that the exact same idea in a different execution... But is it the exact same idea? That that is something. Because well, I think that I've then seen, that's I've seen the, his early video. Yeah. There's always there's always the problem that early work has a, a certain energy that later work doesn't have, and so mm-hmm. his early work is very. There's a strangeness to it where you feel like this is someone exploring something brand new, and they haven't figured out how to package it yet. Mm-hmm. And so there's a rawness to those early works. And then when you get to the calendar, it feels like, oh, it's the same idea, but it's more polished and it's more packaged. And uh, yeah. you don't feel that same discovery. That, that packaging argument is kind of interesting just from a conversation I've been having at work. <clears throat> and it's an insight like because I'm, I'm in a new job. Right. So, uh, you know, you learn a lot when you're in a, in a new company because you get like. They have a whole history, and they're building that history based on a view of the world. They have a different customer, et cetera. But the customer that we serve at Thinkific is like this, what we call a creator educator, but someone who's like a content creator like you or I on this podcast, but is like is packaging that service as education. But um, the like the core, the key insight is that a lot of folks um, that we keep coming across are nervous about selling their expertise in any way, like if they have an audience online. So like they have a, say they have 10,000 followers on Instagram or YouTube, the the most taboo thing in their minds that they can't overcome is the idea that they would ever ask that audience for something in return, like in, in for money basically. Because to your point, like the idea of packaging that relationship um, seems inauthentic, commercial, and, and tacky, like from a... Yeah. Yeah. From their perspective, and it's like it's a deep shame the idea that uh, your expertise would be of value, yeah, commercially. That's very no. There's definitely the art world has this thing figured out where they pretend it's not about money. I think most other forms of uh, industry, other businesses, are very honest about that it's about money. Mm-hmm. So if if you if you make Levi's and you're the CEO of Levi's, you're like, well, of course we want to help the environment, but the overall goal is money. And yeah. the art world has this uh, this etiquette, this way of speaking that even the most successful artists learn not to talk about money or pretend that money is not involved in the decision-making. Yeah, because like you, the price is available upon request. Yeah, yeah. And so it's all opaque. It, and, and so PFPs are the exact opposite of that. Yeah, It's the exactly. exact opposite. And so it's, it starts at small amounts. It, instead, the art world is supposed to start at high amounts, large amounts. And, and so it is the polar opposite. And so I'm interested in, had a painter started with the Bored Apes, but it was shown at Werner Gallery, and they were these huge canvases that had a certain special kind of paint or whatever, and they were appropriating... Uh, a language of a stock footage database and they had used an algorithm to make things look like let's yeah. say that that those same images had gone the high art path would it have been a shocking aesthetic or would we have just seen them in the gallery and be like oh yeah 
No, I yeah. could see them being like a Hearst or a Murakami or something like that, to be honest with yeah. you. Like even the flat yeah. style, super flat. It's it's a Murakami kind of style. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so it's not actually so, an aesthetic taboo. It's more of a distribution taboo. I think that, that that's that's embedded in it. Yeah. So yeah. like I, I've often argued there's a and they're quite, a, you know, it's not even I don't make this argument anymore. But there are some people out there that are still making this argument that art and capital, as soon as you combine the two, you essentially the art becomes about capital and capitalism. And then its only value is as, you know, a monetary. Yeah. But then you can erase token. all of art history. But NFTs confront that directly. And I think. Yeah. For the museum curator or the art buyer, this is too honest. It comes back to our yeah. <laughs> Well, it's, like, it's almost it's like rude. It, it's maybe the same problem with Tinder or dating apps like that. And I feel blessed and you as well, probably, that we never had to go on dating apps. But the dating mm-hmm. app is so directive, like, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. Mm-hmm. Okay, maybe. Uh, and like you're bookmarking people. Yeah, and it's brutal. It's just like, oh yeah, I'll hook up with you. No, not you. Uh, uh, and then it. Oh, that's a, a really simi- good point. There's no romance in it. No, you know? there's a similar thing, and I, 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 we're both not experts on dating, but there's this th- there's this thing where software create it creates efficiencies. It, it removes what they call friction, and maybe the friction is there for a reason because we're going back. This is a nice segue back to being Dutch. It's like sometimes it's not just good to walk up to something and like, I think we should procreate, you know. I will pull my penis out and put it in the hole. When you talked about Dutch people being direct, there's all these movies from the 70s with romantic love scenes, but they're so direct. And it's like, pull down your pants. I'm about to enter you. (laughs) So like you would prefer Casablanca or like tastefully uh, yeah but it, it i mean dutch the dutch it, it, anyone on the podcast listening right now who grew up in the netherlands knows exactly what i'm talking about so it's 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 beyond cringe it's it's uh, yeah. a <laughs> um, but i think that wrote that word romance it's an interesting comparison because what it is is mystery and um and intrigue and like not the the answers aren't all there and so going to find yeah. them but when you tell an engineer that they're like that's terrible. We should we should write an algorithm that gets rid of it. <laughs> Potentially, it's less yeah less efficient means less valuable in that context. Yeah, it so. does seem like programming is going into the realm of the mystery with programming becoming less precise with AI. And it's more like maybe it's going to go this way, maybe it's going to go that way. We're not sure why. Yeah, as an example, um, you know, the chief AI engineer at Tesla. Uh, admitted recently that like 80% of his code he writes with uh, GPT copilot like with on GitHub or GitHub GitHub copilot which is like an AI uh, like generating code tool so now that you know in a you could say that's mysterious like I'm delegating a portion of my responsibility to this abstract being well, um, similar to could, using a, a photo camera for creating yeah. an image <clears throat> yeah. or you could you could make the opposite argument which is it's crassly efficient and it's about producing the most lines of code in the least amount of time right i yeah. think the way artists are approaching ai though is as a romantic collaboration tool <laughs> like the not Oracle. as an efficiency tool or at least that's yeah. probably if you're going to look at ai art that's already celebrated or considered tasteful it's like experiments with ai that um ask questions about what it is to be human and then like the ones that are considered crass would be like experiments with ai that produce a great volume of assets yeah. for consumption yeah. which would be like a pfb or something and, the, like that. and that's also the art world likes to pretend that the volume is low even if we found out later that hearst made over a thousand dot paintings but every time they were in the gallery they're like how many paintings did he make they go you know maybe three I think Chris is a good example, though, of an artist yeah. that's really struggled to maintain his reputation amid yeah. distribution acceleration, yeah. right? Yeah. Because as he got into the dot paintings, especially, then people started to question his other, eth- you know, ethical um, positions on, like, you know, capturing butterflies and things like that. And they're like, "Wait a second, this guy is only interested." Yeah, but I think was he beautiful was, until I realized it was only he, for. Commerce. I think he always embraced. Uh, I, getting as I much agree. attention as possible. Uh, like if you you can't encrust a you can't skull glue with diamonds. butterflies <laughs> to a canvas and then be, be worried that people have an opinion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely was trying to 
to shock um, and came out of that YBA movement that was trying to do that. Like Tracy Emin was trying to do the same thing. Well, was but, that a um, new ugly? Like, did, did they well, people consider Tracy Emin's work extremely ugly. Uh, yeah. Like when she put a bed with like semen stains in the gallery, like her bed, um, people consider that to be one of the most deplorable, you know, and that word deplorable is kind of funny, but deplorable artworks ever. Yeah. It was a scandal yeah. in the UK, but that was... It was so weird to me when I saw those works. They seemed so obvious. And I'm like, hasn't anyone done that already? I know. It seems like an art school thing. But they were in art school. But then the (laughs) shocking thing is like, oh, I guess nobody put the semen bed in the gallery. (laughs) Or maybe they did. It's it's weird. Because you you go into art school and then you have some ideas and you're like, oh, I'm going to fill the gallery with water. And then the teacher will have 12 examples of artists who did that. And then you're like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. oh, I'm just going to put plants all over the gallery. They're like, oh, well, they, these artists did that. And so, yeah. but then you're like, oh, nobody filled the gallery with sneakers. I guess I'll do that. <laughs> did they jack off with the sneakers? No? Oh, well, <laughs> yeah. I could uh, easily improve upon this. Let me help there. Yeah. <laughs> Let me help there, yeah. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, it, it, did, do you ever it. feel shocked with with aesthetics? Like when the NFTs came out, where you're like, "Oh boy, that's ugly." No, but you mentioned in art school. Well, yeah, yeah. On the NFT side of things, the deviant art um, kind of work, and that I think is an, another thread that we could describe, talk about, is like because there were artworks that I had seen for 10, 15 years, but had been largely discounted as um you know in in a in a rude way really that's like offensive illustration illustration yeah something that belongs on deviant art or any of these like you know uh subcultural um uh communities online i was like is this a repackaging of a pre you know a former aesthetic that wasn't accessible to a larger audience Um, and and then there's there's the general um disdain for an entire category so you could see the deviant art type of work and just have a blanket statement like not my thing get out of here but every genre has better and worse candidates so then if you start reading more and you start looking at it more you're like oh wait a minute this is the tastemaker in the genre and this is the Mm. person who made made aesthetic choices that nobody did and then other people followed and etc so that's it, a really good point that we have. It's like you about. might say, yeah. "Oh, I'm not into country music," and then like, "Well, have you heard this and this and this?" And yeah. you're like, "Oh, wow." Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I think that's a really good point we haven't covered, which is like, you know, you might if you just bought, you know, went to uh, you know wine drinking parties and had barefoot, you know, or yellowtail or something like that, and then had never had a finer wine. Though you could argue olive wine is uh, tacky, but regardless, like, there are aesthetic there's an aesthetic spectrum, right, of good and bad that only exposure to a broader data set, right, would would allow you to understand, you know, what is good and what is bad. It's kind of a hard argument to make, though, because there's a certain snob, which we've talked about on the podcast before, being a snob. What is being a snob except, like, deciding that some things are of lesser value and others are of greater value based on an arbitrary set of variables? Like, this wine is better because it's older, and or it's from this territory and but all of these are variables that are relatively subject like they're certainly subjective right because they rely on your personal experience and then other people tell you that this is what you should feel and then you believe them basically um so i don't think it's that different from fashion to be honest with you um yeah even in yeah. wine right now like uh, skin contact wines and cloudy wines like wines that would have been considered unservable like i went to a a high-end wine store here in calgary yes they exist in calgary and the i was like what's this wine it looks really exciting that's like cloudy and the guy was like oh this is the wine that they would uh give the servants or the people that pick the grapes yeah historically well historically Um, for example lobsters were fed to prisoners they were really considered like the lowest of the low form of food that basically these sea bugs who wants to eat that and now it's Everyone's like, let's go to Maine on vacation. I can't wait to eat lobster. And <laughs> and, and the same with uh, sushi. In the 80s, people wanted the absolute least fat in the tuna. So mm. as red as possible. That was very chic. And now it's like, oh, the fattiest tuna, this melts in your mouth. It's, mm-hmm. it, 
so everything. You would think that food is so deeply biological that we wouldn't be sensitive to trends, but we are. Yeah. Yeah, I bought salmon belly from a sushi restaurant the other day, and I was like, mmm, just give me the fat yeah. <laughs> of the salmon. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, no, I, yeah, so I, I, I do think, though, that it comes back to it's a human experience, but it, it's impossible to separate it from cultural uh, influences. But, but and, one of the things I found interesting is that I was in the belief that we don't live in a time with a dominant movement but we live in a time of uh, multiplicity yeah and and everything happening at the same time and still there is a general sense of that is ugly but we talked about it a second ago like shame is a very powerful yeah but if you imagine an an art bookstore just imagine it in your head right now Mm -hmm. it's like a cool location downtown Please, where is it? I want to be there. It, it's like the, the, the bookcases are made with really cheap default plywood. Oh, and yes. I can still yeah. smell the glue. And, and all the book covers are like a solid color linen with a really big typeface mm. with the name of the artist. And it's all tasteful. And then within that realm, within the, that packaging, you can do whatever you want. And you can paint board apes or you could paint, you could be William Wegman. As long as you stay in that realm and... So there's these certain signals to be like, okay, this is an aesthetic safe space. So yeah, as long as I can't buy it at a gas station, you know, it's still yeah, still valuable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe like it if is it becomes more about beef jerky, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, like yeah. if a truck driver could buy it by the side of the road in Wyoming or something, then but yeah, then you might like, go to a truck stop in Italy or Spain or Japan, and they're like, oh, mm, these onigiri are really good. Mm, indeed, yeah. Then it's like I've discovered something that the bourgeoisie passed yeah. over you know and i'm yeah. yeah so i mean it's like discovering a band before anyone else knows about it too and that all that stuff there ha- i think exclusivity plays into aesthetic more than we like to admit yeah, um, yeah, yeah. if everyone was wearing margella hoof boots outside they would very quickly be considered uggs or crocs and then you know, they well, go out of style, but then they come let, back in style like two years later if, if we look at fashion it, it's always intriguing to me that Silicon Valley says they embrace creativity and the creator culture, uh, the, the creator economy. Yeah. And, and none of them are into fashion for their own person. None of them. So Steve Jobs, is, Steve Jobs is the best example where he says, I'm all about design. The thing should like be Miyake. perfect. Yeah, but he's wearing a, a black turtleneck and uh, jeans without a belt and new belt. The black shoes. turtleneck, the story there is that those were Isaiah Ma- Mayaki turtlenecks that he had ordered as uniforms for the whole staff. And then. No, I understand. But look, yeah. I understand that his choices, whatever he's into design. But then yeah. if you look at him next to, I don't know, an example. Like a high someone, fashion. Yeah. No, like someone who's very well dressed is the, the drummer from the Rolling Stones who was always in a suit or Brian Ferry or someone like that. Okay. If you look at them next to Steve Jobs, most people would agree who's dressed better. I know, like it's Steve just Jobs, funny that the Steve Jobs fashion ended up catching fire, like New Balance shoes, I know. like high-waisted jeans. I know, I know, I know, I <laughs> know. But, but yeah. so it's, it's funny that he talked about designing even the inside of the computer and everything, but then when it came to his own appearance, it's like, okay, as easy as possible. I don't want to think about yeah, it. Yeah, you're right. I think the the other example would be Zuckerberg with the gray t-shirt and yeah. Uh, yeah. horrible It's like, I, I want to take out the decision tree out of my head so I have more energy to think about work. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I then mean, that person is going to make visual decisions on the metaverse. Yeah, I mean, I don't trust uh, Mark. I mean, that's a great example and, and maybe a good point, which is like, for the average... A aesthetic person or athlete, like to use the term like athlete, um, Zuckerberg would be considered one of the tackiest human beings on the planet. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it's not tacky. It, it, it to me, it's not a question of tackiness. It's a question of priorities. And then yeah. it, it, we talked about the Zuckerberg video once where he automates his house. Yeah, and there's a piece of toast in the toaster that's waiting. Everyone for go for back and day. watch that video because it's, yeah. it's timeless. But the idea is that the toaster is tied to this voice computer but the piece of toast has been in that toaster since he went to bed so it's stale as fuck and it's the opposite of like going to a little bakery in a french town and having the best possible croissant i know and so 
Are we talking about aesthetics then, or is it just like pure sadness? It's pure sadness, I think. Yeah. yeah. And I want, I, in a way, I almost want Zuckerberg to win. Like, um, I don't, you don't want, want him to the be, French croissant. I don't want him to be so wrong about so many things. Um, but Facebook <laughs> is a great, a great example of a product that um, is mismanaged, right? Like where it became you know, through artifice, which is like, or like ornamentation, like one more thing, one more thing, like the super app, it's a super app of super apps. Yeah. It became unusable. Adding features too much. Yeah. Until it was like, it's, it is really in a, in that sense, we were talking about Gaudi as like, you know, Gaudi's architecture, it's impossible for the eye to land on anything. And I often, when I've been in design conversations at work, I'll start to talk about where the eye lands and stuff and people start to roll their eyes, but I'm like, no, like the, it is a muscle and it is responding to what's in front of it. And we have to, you know, there has to be some respect <laughs> for this poor muscle. And I, 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 at this point in my life with my only one eye basically working well, for me, it's more true than ever. Like <laughs> <laughs> I only have so many minutes left. <laughs> that poor little muscle is <laughs> exactly like it It only gets a few more morsels of, of life. I feel that um, way with meals more and more. It's like, uh, I only have this many meals left. I want to make it count. Like I could, I, I really get upset when I have a bad meal. I'm like I, I can't eat too much. It's unhealthy. So, you know, if I'm going to eat something delicious, I want to make it count. And da, da, da. Yeah. But that's another good point, which is like, um, as life goes on, people tend to make decisions about what they like or don't like. Like if you think about, um, I was watching The White Lotus. I don't know if you had a chance to tune in, but yeah. one of the characters yeah, is this young girl, and she, you'll you'll notice her fashion choices are which one? You know, the the blonde woman, um, the assistant one to two? Jennifer Coolidge in season two. Oh yeah, yeah. And she, you know, she's wearing all of this mismatched fashion, and then the director and costume designers came out and said that was intentional to to demonstrate that like early in life we're still trying to figure out who we are what we like and dislike and she hasn't made up her mind yet so she's sort of navigating that early stage of life well you you always admired old people i did yeah I would, and now i'm wearing jogging pants and a sweatshirt so like <laughs> uh but like so as life goes on though the point being like you might choose an aesthetic path that you, and you're unwilling to diverge from it but early in life you're willing to experiment with many aesthetics well that's the Seinfeld joke that guys find their style around when they're 30 and then that's their style for the rest of their <laughs> life <laughs> and the world moves on I did like, try yeah. to change up my jean style in my 40s recently and then I was like what am I trying to do here this is ridiculous <laughs> these what, jeans what are was too the wide change? I went to like a slightly wider blue jean like a more classic yeah I did the same it, and, yeah. and, it, and I was like I felt like uh, some sort of hillbilly lumberjack or something. Even though they were Japanese, they're a Muji, like experimental, like, you know, high fashion jean. I just didn't feel... Well, the, my friend made this joke that was true. It's like it, it, Levi's came out with these 90s 501s. Yeah. Uh, and it's like a re reissue. And if you're 18, it's cool because you clearly were never in the 90s. But when you're our age, you're like, did you just keep the same jeans? Yeah, the rule is you're not supposed to, if you've been around for the trend twice, you're not allowed to have access to it. I think with hair, yeah. you see that. And that's what, you know, when you're like, that old person has hair that I've never seen on any young person before. But they're really, it's because in their 30s, they locked in that style. So I think probably in 10 years, there'll be a bunch of people with like but then shaved I see, sides and blown back In my neighborhood, I see like old Puerto Rican guys that are Cuban and they dress in that sort of classic Latin American style and it just is great even though they're old they're yeah but, well they figured it's, out the time really cool thing. yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're leaning in um okay so if we're gonna put a cap on this though like what because I don't I'm not paying as much attention to nfts as um as you are I don't think or certainly not as much as I was before is uh, where is it going like aesthetically I keep hearing like the first NFT was bought by, you know, a museum like SF MoMA bought something recently. And uh, like that, you know, there's there, there's now retrospectives. I think, of I shows. think like, uh, yeah, what's going on? I think the NFTs that will be bought by museums will be things that uh, more resemble more net art than uh, PFP projects. So I think they'll be interesting to you. I see. So I, I think they will come from from the, the tastemakers. 
the the tradition of exploring the medium and and uh, yeah. I think that's what's what's going to survive because I think museums have always embraced people who go deep in a, in their medium and uh, yeah. Well, there. I mean, maybe that's the ultimate point here, which is like there is this uh, fetishism for the new, but um, the like you said on a previous podcast, like you know, it started out you could just have a three D rotating video, but eventually you know, NFT as a formal exploration became like, you have to be able to write your own algorithms and like host your own chains and da, 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 da. So like the aesthetics from a technical standpoint, the craft actually had to be the vocabulary emerged and that emergent vocabulary is just starting to produce some of the works that we might. Yeah. And and there is a complexity that things that are, that's always been the, it's the same with street art, like things that were very cool on the street might not be interesting uh, in the gallery. And the yeah. same with NFT, certain aspects of the community aspect and the trading and the thing maybe changing over time, every time it changes a wallet or things like that yeah. are very hard to exhibit. So that whatever looks good in a museum might not be the best experience online another way around. So There you go. I don't know if that's a good yeah. way to summarize this, but uh, yeah, we didn't figure it out, but we talked no. about kind of we and defined then, uh, some some kind of a form around it. Aesthetics. I'm just clicking now. We have one field recording by Jesper Norbeck. Uh, it's birds. I can't find the original email, but and I'll put like, his his uh, stats in the in the show notes. Now, where are the where are these birds located? I'm looking at some birds outside. My window right now. Great, They're on the internet. Great pleasure. They're, they're cyber birds. They're internet cyber birds. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, I'm looking at like a fat chickadee outside my window now. Um, oh, cute. But I suppose in New York that would be like a a fat uh, crow or something. Or <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. What is the most a seagull, a fat seagull, or a dead seagull on the top of a roof next to an air conditioner? <laughs> Sounds good. Do you miss New York? I'm trying to describe a New York aesthetic. Um, I do. I do miss New York. My bubble in my eye is getting small enough that I should be able to travel by March. Do you miss travel? Yeah. Or it's kind of chill <clears throat> not to travel. It's kind of chill not to travel. Like, I don't even drive anymore. Kristen drives me around. I was saying, it's my life. It's do you my sit time in, in life the backseat when she drives you around? No, no, no. I ride shotgun. But I did. Okay. Yeah, we had a friend and I was sitting in the backseat. And I was like, I've never sat in the backseat before. This is amazing. <laughs> um, I could get used to this. I find the Tesla a little bit ugly. Speaking of ugly. Sorry to break your heart, but... Yeah, I mean, I don't find it ugly because um, it, it remi- it's like a crock, I think. Like, mm. Yeah, it's plastic. It, yeah. It's built for efficiency um, yeah. and just good looking enough that you know it's a car. Like, oh yeah, that's yeah. a car, you know? Um, yeah. And it gets a lot of criticism for looking like a flattened catfish uh, or something like that. But uh, <laughs> it's, uh, you have to give them credit for making something recognizable. I mean, it's like AirPods. We've accepted them, but they're definitely not... You wouldn't wear them as an accessory if they weren't pushing sound. I mean, this happens all the time. Maybe that's a, it's a topic for I mean, another it, day, but like... Yeah, it's like yeah. some people wear sunglasses in a club in the dark just because they love the look so much. It's not just functional. Yeah. yeah. But I can guarantee you this. Like, in 30 years, it'll be fashionable to wear AirPods made today with Crocs oh, yeah. and... <laughs> Uh, like then yeah. you know whatever. Well, like, let's make a deal. We'll we'll meet in uh, 2053 and we'll do that. I'll be wearing my skinny jeans, skin yeah. tight. All right. <laughs> All right. Thanks, All right, everyone. guys. Bye bye. Bye.